Thank you very much, Desmond. Thank you for that welcome, and uh, thank you also for that very moving tribute <coughs> to your great uncle, I guess it was, and uh, also to Edith Cavell. Indeed, that leads us on very much into what I wanted to share with you this morning, what I think the Lord wants me to share with you. But it is a, a joy to be with you again, so thank you for making me so welcome as ever. I know that uh, some of you may have heard me on this recently before, uh, but I really want to speak to you about spiritual warfare this morning, something very much laid on my heart. And as Desmond was sharing that story, it makes you realize what terrible times some people have to live through. I found my emotion as he was speaking was, well, thank you, Lord, that we don't have to face that degree of persecution yet. And uh, the burden of my heart increasingly in recent weeks and months is for the degree of spiritual attack we're under on a variety of levels. I think the nation, first of all. Uh, and we must not stop praying for our nation. God has blessed this country, this nation of ours, immensely over almost 2,000 years now because the gospel came into these shores in the first century <clears throat> within a very few years of the Lord's um, death and resurrection. Uh, and uh, he's used us as a nation in a tremendous way over the years. We don't deserve it, but then that's grace for you. Uh, and I think that we're at a very, very critical moment in our national life. I know that's easily been said before. But it seems to me the decisions that face us as a nation at the moment could alter the character of our nation for a long time to come. And then the state of the church as well. Uh, the lack of respect for the word of God. The decline in uh, understanding and holding to the great truths of scripture. Theologically and also morally in our nation at this moment. We're under great attack as Christians seem to be a minority interest, which now uh, not many people want to share. But also, and this I include myself, as some of you know, uh, it may be spiritual warfare on a, on a personal level. And it may be that we're going through areas in our own lives or in our families where we feel the intensity of the attack we're under is a little more than we're used to. So whatever the level is, I, uh, I just believe the Lord wants us to look at the whole area of spiritual warfare. And uh, uh, having been uh, booked to come here for a long, long time, it, it was uh, a, a, um, a joy in a way to find that uh, I wasn't given a subject this morning by your good selves so I could bring this quite freely, uh, which I do. Spiritual warfare. P uh, we're not going to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We're having another scripture in a moment. But in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul talks about the spiritual armor, he talks about taking on the armor so that in the day of evil, when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand. Which seems to suggest that some days are more evil than others. And that story this morning brought that very much to mind. And I believe that some of us are finding that there is real evil at work. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So I want to center our thoughts on a lovely story in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles and chapter 20. 
Um, it should be on the screen. Uh, 2 Chronicles and chapter 20, uh, verses 1 to 19, a fairly long reading, but I think it's quite a gripping story. It's uh, from the time when Israel had split into two different nations. The northern ten nations had already declined in godliness to the point where they were in desperate trouble under Ahab and Jezebel and other very, very evil kings. The southern two tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, centered on Jerusalem, still had a measure of God's presence amongst them, especially here under King Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat had actually just done something a little bit unwise, but he returned to Jerusalem, and this is where we pick up the story. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 1. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, with some of the Meonites, came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom and the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard and said, and this is one of the great prayers of Scripture, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. O oh, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of the land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear and save us. But now, here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of uh, Mataniah a Levite and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. He said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. 
Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be coming, uh, climbing up by the pass of Ziz. And you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Sure, the Lord will bless to us the reading of his word, and if you want to find out what happened on the following day, you'll have to read the rest of the story at home. <laughs> We've got enough to, go, to get on with there. It's a lovely story, and uh, the nation of Judah was certainly facing spiritual warfare. What I'd like to do, I feel the Lord would have us do, is pick out some of the points that were relevant to their battle at that time and see how relevant they may be to our battle today. The very first point in verse 3 that we note is that Jehoshaphat was alarmed. He didn't just sort of say, oh, well, it's, uh, we'll deal with that when it comes along. He didn't say, oh, well, <laughs> there's nothing we can do about it, so we'll just give up. He was alarmed. He was concerned. He had an emotional reaction to the circumstances they were facing, and it concerned him. Does the state of the nation concern us at the moment? Does the uh, laws that have been passed concern us? The state of the church, are we alarmed? Are we alarmed at the individual circumstances we may be facing or are we just shrug, shrug, uh, shrugging it, uh, it off and saying, well, <laughs> nothing we can do about it? It just seems to me very often in the church today we're, as it were, pulling up the drawbridge and inside in our holy huddles. We've got to be alarmed at what's going on. We've got to be mightily concerned about the circumstances that are happening. And maybe the Lord's shaking us through personal circumstances as to our duty you know, when people, and I've probably said this here before, when people criticize the politicians for what's going on, I have to say, well, if they don't know the Lord, what else can you expect? It, it's not the politicians. It's the church that we should be concerned about because we are the ambassadors for Jesus Christ in an alien culture. We are those who are salt and light in our society, and if our society is in a terrible state, it's because we haven't been doing our job. It's the state of the church we need to worry about. Are we alarmed? Are we concerned? Great to hear about the open air work here and the, uh, the prayer and the support that that's getting. But it's being the people of God that we ought to be. And it's a, a real heartfelt concern, whether it's for our nation or for the state of the church, for the lack of real um, godly apostolic preaching today. Uh, that sense of, thus says the Lord, this is what God is saying, and where is it today? And are we alarmed about what's happening maybe in our own family members? Yes, maybe, as we've just sung in one of those songs, 
we have been praying and it seems to be unanswered prayer. But for all of this, we have Jesus, as we'll see as we go on through this passage. Alarmed. I believe the Lord would give us all a wake-up call. We have to be very, very concerned uh, as to what's going on in our nation, in our churches, and in our families. And then secondly, in verse 3, we also notice that he proclaimed a fast. I want to deal with this just in passing. So I haven't come here to tell you today. You can't have any biscuits for your coffee afterwards. I'm not advocating anyone should fast. But I want to just mention about fasting as a principle. Maybe we come from circles where it hasn't been that much practiced. Uh, But um, why not? In the Sermon on the Mount, which we often call the mandate for the church, the Lord gave teaching about prayer. Matthew 6, verses uh, 5 down to about 15, I think it is. Great teaching on prayer. We love that. Including in that teaching is what we call the Lord's Prayer or the pattern prayer. Immediately after that, the Lord said, and when you fast. So he's linking fasting with prayer. But in that teaching about fasting, he's actually saying it's a matter between you and God and nobody else. It's not for public consumption. Consumption is probably the wrong word there, but (laughs) it's not to broadcast it abroad necessarily. And he compares for the uh, Pharisees, uh, you know, making sure everyone knew what holy people they were because they were fasting. It's something between you and God, so what is it about? I believe it comes, after, uh, uh, along with prayer, that when there are burdens of prayer that are so real upon us, concerns before Almighty God, it may be that fasting is a means whereby we are showing God we are in absolute earnest. Our prayer is not just ritualistic. It's not just doing the thing we think we ought to do because that's what Christians do. It's that burden we bear that we're showing God as we seek to take the throne of God by storm that we're in great earnest uh, and that the prayer burden we have, not the actual uh, 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 action of prayer, but the motivation behind it is something which stirs us at the deepest level. I remember when I was doing youth work many years ago now, uh, we had um, several of our young people came to know the Lord. They were getting into their late teens. And uh, some of them were suddenly beginning to fall away. And uh, it was a great concern to me as a youth leader at the time. And one boy in particular, uh, his uh, salvation had been a wonderful uh, answer to prayer and a triumph but realizing he was gradually beginning to slip away into the world after leaving school and college. And uh, for, for a, 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 a while, several months, really burdened in prayer. And I can tell you this, when you have a prayer burden like that, you go off your food. <laughs> you know, you just don't want to pray. It's almost, uh, uh, you don't want to uh, eat. It's almost an incidental thing in life. Uh, and fasting isn't just about food. It's about uh, maybe voluntarily putting to one side something which is perfectly legitimate, perfectly acceptable in normal life. But as a result of the earnestness in the intercession you feel, it's of minor consequence. It's something you're prepared to put at a a distance 
for the sake of, of, of concentrating before the throne of God on whatever it is we're praying for. That's fasting. In Corinthians, um, Paul says it may be a couple leaving their normal relationship as a couple for a little while, praying together for a burden, and then later coming back together again in normal marriage relationship. You know what I mean. Uh, whatever it is, I remember one lady saying, well, when I'm fasting, you know, I, I, I stop buying clothes. That's my passion. <laughs> whatever. It's fasting. It's showing God that we mean business, that we're in earnest. And maybe that's what we need to take on board. So he proclaimed a fast. And then thirdly, the people came together. Verse 4. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. And in verse 13 we read, All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. I love that. You know, they didn't sort of round up the babysitters. <laughs> they all came along. Uh, Desmond, you said just now about how good the kids were. This is lovely when the whole family community is in worship together before Almighty God. Not only in public uh, uh, worship like this today, but what about in our homes, in our families? Do we involve the children in a simple way of the issues that we're facing we need to pray for so-and-so in our prayers tonight, darling, we may say to the children, to bring them in, to involve them. In my own circumstances, as some of you know, uh, we have uh, Chloe, one of the two girl, uh, children that I've helped to bring up, who, who's not with us at the moment, and Callum, her, her brother, who still loves to have prayers every night before he goes to sleep. Are we going to pray for Chloe? We are involving the children, the little ones. We're together as community, as family. And they all stood there, all of them, wives, children, and little ones, involved together in the Christian community, God's people doing their thing, pleading before God for a lost world that's around us. And then we come to, oh, no, verse 5, <clears throat> just before we come to the prayer. Where they met, they came to the place where God had established his name. They came to the big courtyard in front of the temple. Now, what I'm going to say now, I don't want you to feel I've gone do lally. <laughs> well, you probably think that anyway, but um, <clears throat> I, I, I'm not um, wanting to be superstitious or legalistic about what I'm going to say, but it just seems to me, for me anyway, that when you're really in earnest in prayer, sometimes there are places or times or situations where prayer is easier than at other times. It may not be for you. I'm, I'm not being legalistic. For me, it, it, it's a, we got a little conservatory on the end of the lounge, and I love to get in there, whether it's during the day or more likely in the night, you know, when you can't sleep and you wake up three or four o'clock and... Uh, why not use it for prayer? And, uh, <clears throat> you know, we've got the garden outside and, 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 the, and the nature and at night time there's the stars and whatever when it's not cloudy. The Celtic Christians, our spiritual forebears in this country in the early centuries, uh, today we would um, <clears throat> see them as being Protestant and evangelical. They had a lovely quaint expression 
called Find the Thin Place. And what they meant was the distance between you and God in certain places seems to be very thin. Find a thin place. The place where you find it so easy to come into God's presence. The place which seems so God's presence, the Spirit seems to be there in a real measure uh, that's, that's helpful. And for each one of us, it may just be there are certain times or places, maybe circumstances, where you just feel that's where I can really meet with the Lord in the still, small voice uh, that he uh, uses, the quiet place, the thin place. And they went to the place where prayer was easy before the great temple, the sanctuary of God. Wherever you feel the presence of God, get there and do business with the Lord as we engage in spiritual warfare. Then we come to his prayer. One of the great prayers of Scripture, as I said, and I'm just going to give you four points from this prayer. First of all, Jehoshaphat had respect for God in his prayer. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations, power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Right at the beginning of his prayer, before he got onto his needs or their concerns or anything else, he, le- he raises God to the rightful place that he occupies. Do we do that in our prayers? Do we do that in our worship? Or is our worship more self-centered? Is our relationship, as genuine Christians, with the Lord more about what he's going to do for us rather than what we can do for him which is to extol his name and glorify his majesty. You know, it's, um, forgive me for showing my age a bit, but when we used to come to place of worship on a Sunday, there was a holy quietness to start off with. We used to come and have a moment of quiet personal prayer. There was that lovely sense of coming into the presence of God. When Jesus taught us the pattern prayer, the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Reminds us that what we're really talking about when we're talking about spiritual warfare in this world is the honor of God's name. The respect for who he is and his person. How can the world ever know and understand the need to get right with God unless they know something about who God is and his character and they see it in us? And they understand that for us it's an awesome thing to deal with Almighty God. The fact that we can come in here in the name of Jesus, our triune God, and we can worship the very power behind the universe, the one who holds not just the earth but the whole universe in his hands, the one who upholds all things by his powerful word, and he calls us to come to be in his presence and we do so knowing our own insignificance (coughs) how unworthy we are how much it is of grace that we're here and we come to acknowledge the glory of God may something of his glory of his greatness of his power and our respect for it go with us as we go out into the world outside and people will know we've been with the living God There's a touch upon our lives. So in the very beginning of his prayer, 
there's that respect. And as we pray, we should respect Almighty God. You know, it's not in our prayers that we say things like, oh God, would you do this and would you do that? I know it's only an expression and I've done it as well. But we don't order God about. We don't tell him what he's got to do. We acknowledge that he is the God of the universe and all things are in his hands. He holds the nations indeed. Secondly, we see that Jehoshaphat reminded God of their, pro- their covenant relationship with him. And he reminded the people around that they were God's people. They weren't the people just like all the pagan nations around them. They were, they were in a special relationship with this almighty God, and so are we. We're God's covenant people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's a deal. And when we accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, believing that he died for us on the cross, we're a covenant people when we accept that, when we place our faith and trust in God the Son, and the Father is delighted. We're accepted. We have peace with God because we're in a covenant relationship through our faith in Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes, dear friends, we feel when we're up against the real attack of the enemy that we're almost under Satan's power. We are not. We're under the power of our Father God who says, call me Father, call me Daddy. Just share everything with me. And uh, we're God's children. We're not the enemy's children. We're not subject just to the vagaries of the world. We are God's people. We are the Lord's people. We are the children of God. He is our Heavenly Father and nothing can happen to us without his knowledge and his express permission. We know that from Job's story particularly. We're children of God's promise. Thirdly, in his prayer, Jehoshaphat gets real. There's reality in prayer. He's very, very clear. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? He doesn't mince his words. It's not nice religious language. He's absolutely real in his prayer before God. Are we? That sense of uh, telling God how it is. Sometimes, you know, we do feel upset with God. Sometimes we feel upset with other people. Yes, we have to ask God for the ability to forgive and all the rest of it, but we have to be specific in our prayer requests when we're engaged in this real spiritual warfare, it's telling God exactly what we feel. We're being real with Almighty God. He doesn't want us just to engage in sort of uh, language where we're we're not getting to the, the nub of the issue. In prayer, Jehoshaphat said, this is what they're like, God. We want you to know that we know. And fourthly, he brought before God their need, their need. We have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. We've all got needs when we're engaged in real spiritual warfare. Maybe specific people. It may be circumstances in our church. It may be the upcoming election. Whatever it is, be specific in our need, Lord, we really need your help in this matter. 
We really need our, your help, Lord, in our nation. Lord, I really need your help in this particular circumstance I face. And get real before God and articulate our need before him. Jesus said, God already knows what you need, so go and tell him. And people say, well, if God already knows, why bother to tell him? That's the argument that's thrown against us. But uh, it's all about relationship and it's all about honesty. A father may well know what their child's been up to because mum's already told him. But he'll come along and say, now come here, Johnny. I want you to sit down and tell me what you're up to. And it's no good saying, Moo, you already know because mum's just told you. <laughs> it's all about father and child. It's all about the relationship. Father wants to hear Johnny tell him for himself. It's all about honesty. If God already knows, we can't pull the wool over his eyes. We can't pretend. There's got to be real honesty. And there's got to be honesty before God, even though we try to hide it from each other or from ourselves. We, we, we tell God what our need really is. Lord, I just have come to the end of my understanding of what I can do or what I feel about it. Lord, we are in desperate need. We bring before God our true need because we're coming to our Father God. And then God's answer. God immediately gave an answer, verse 14. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, a Levite and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. I believe the gifts of the Spirit are for today as well, and here's a word of knowledge. And it came right then. Absolutely amazing. You might say, well, this is Old Testament. Does that apply? Uh, a little bit of theology. We talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament as that the Spirit came upon certain people at certain times for certain circumstances. And this was one of them. In the New Testament, uh, from the day of uh, Pentecost, uh, 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 in the age in which we still live, the Holy Spirit comes upon each one of us when we accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You don't need another experience to have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. We cannot say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. And he is the guarantor of our salvation. Yes, there's a lot of work the Holy Spirit needs to do in our lives. We need to continually be filled and have fresh infilling and so on. That's another subject. But we have the Holy Spirit. We are God's people. It gives us our character and he's in our lives changing us and molding us, giving us his gifting and his uh, bringing that fruitfulness from our characters, from our lives. God gave his answer immediately. And what was the answer? Verse 15. God was going to take over. We read, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Friends, history is his story. God is in control. He holds the nations as in a bucket. And God is in ultimate control. He's in control of our nation. He's in control of our parliament. He's in control of the nations of the world. And he knows exactly what he's allowing and what he's doing. And he knows what the end will be. Our times are in his hands. And he knows what he's going to do in the church. But he calls us into warfare with him. 
although he knows what he's going to do, in his foreknowledge, he brings us in, as it were, into the circuit, so that in our praying, it uh, brings about his answering. And uh, that's that wonderful partnership we have with God. Yes, he's, he knows what he's going to do. The battle is the Lord's. But uh, he, he's, uh, he's asking us to uh, listen to him and to come into uh, the, the, alongside him in what he's going to do. Dear friend, you're not alone. You're fighting in a spiritual battle. We're not alone today in our nation. God is in control. And God knows what he's going to do with this nation. We deserved utter judgment at the beginning of the 18th century with the state of the nation at that time. We deserved God just to abandon us then. And many people, uh, including uh, Isaac Watts and uh, other great men of God at that time, said, that's it, we've finished as a nation. So what did God do? He sent the Great Awakening with John Wesley and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, three vicars actually, and he sent a Great Awakening with them. And we had a mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God knows exactly what he's going to do, but he's asking us, to share in his concern while we wait. God was going to take over. Verse 16, the timing is in his hands. Tomorrow, march down against them. God doesn't always give us his timing. He did then. Generally, he doesn't. It's like the disciples after the ascension, just before the Lord was ascended back into the spiritual realms, he said, wait. Wait in Jerusalem. That word wait, the only time it occurs in Scripture, and it's called perimino, that's the Greek word. And it means stick around, stay in your circles, stay where I have put you, stay in Jerusalem. And uh, that's the idea of being in circles has gone into our popular thinking. You know, we talk about family circles and friendship circles and the circle of fellowship at the church. And uh, it's that idea, stay where you are until I tell you to move on, until I tell you what I'm going to do. God doesn't always give us his timing. More's the pity, I know, but then that's the way it is. He says, trust me, just, just stick around, wait. Now here it says, you stay here, and then tomorrow you've got something else to do. So the timing is his. And then in verse 17... They were to stand, not fight. In verse 17, you will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. So in other words, it wasn't a question of them all going back to their homes and making a cup of tea. They said, no, you have to actually prepare as if you were going to fight. In my own personal circumstances at the moment, which I'm not going to bore you with, I've had to do a, a certain amount of preparation in terms of writing down uh, a report of what's gone on at, at other people's hands against one of our children that uh, I'm involved with. And uh, thinking, Lord, that's what you're asking me to do. And I had to go through with all my legal training and write out a legal report as to what had happened, not knowing what God was going to do about it. And then suddenly I was told by a, a, a local Christian who's a, a district councillor uh, who, who knew of our problems, and he said, David, I need to know what's been going on because now, as a councillor, we have a duty to report that to a central database. It's a new scheme that's been set up. I've already done it. <laughs> Here it is. I was prepared. That's God's grace, not my wisdom. 
Uh, prepare yourself. Prepare yourself with prayer meetings. Prepare yourself with, with thinking and praying and discussion, whatever it is that we're facing in our spiritual warfare. Prepare ourselves, and then the Lord will use what we've prepared. They had to stand at the place of battle. Exactly as uh, Paul told the Ephesians, stand with spiritual armor. And having done all, you're still standing. And dear friends, we're not sitting down. We're standing in the place of prayer, of urgency, of concern, of alarm, in the spiritual warfare that's going on all around us and increasingly so in our day. They stood. They didn't have to fight, but they had to prepare and stand. And my final point. This, verse, uh, this uh, message was given by that Levite. Jehoshaphat bowed down and praised the Lord. And then some Levites got their instruments out. And they praised the Lord before anything had happened. <laughs> they praised the Lord for what he was about to do. And that's what we do as well. We don't sit down and say, oh, I wonder if it's going to happen. <laughs> I wonder if God really means it. I wonder if we've been dreaming. They praise God for the God who he is and what he's going to do. Dear friend, let me encourage you in your spiritual battles, specifically if they're really bearing down upon you, you are God's child. He has the time. He has the future in his hands. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows what's going to happen in our nation after all the confusion of the last three years. He knows what's going to take place. And he knows what's going to take place in the church. He knows what gifting he's going to pour out upon the church. He knows what uh, people he's going to raise up to bring us back to the word of God and to the power of the Holy Spirit working in the church again. The Lord is in control. Let's praise his name. And we do so as we sing our closing hymn, number 735.